Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go back and go to hell. I'm not alone. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one look. Talk to the roof. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time. This is part two of a two-part special we're doing on Bundy's buddy, serial killer Caesar Baroni. If you want what we're talking about to make sense, you best go back to episode 159 and listen to part one first. Caesar Baroni, a.k.a. Adolf James Rohde, was an American serial killer and sexual sadist who was prison pals with his murder idol, Ted Bundy. Apparently, Ted gave him some red-hot tips that helped him become a serial killer. Caesar didn't conform to the rules of criminal profiling, murdering both elderly and young women. He used different methods, sometimes strangling or suffocating his victims and sometimes shooting them at point-blank range. This vile piece of shit also killed alone and with a partner. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Yeah, although full disclosure, not the most fun episode we've ever done. No, it's, yeah. (laughs) It's, It's just so much horrible stuff that happens. Dear God. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we would thank individually after our story. We'll thank them rambunctiously. We will. 
If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our majestically awkward first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where we pop like there's no tomorrow and comment on passing motorbikes. But mostly we talk about true crime. Did you just hear that motorbike go past? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, hang on. We should stop talking for a sec because of the motorbike. Well. Do you reckon it's gone? No. Nah. I should add a few ums in too. I used to love saying um. I was like the biggest um beast this side of... <laughs> I don't really know how to finish that sentence. Uh, levels above $5 receive stickers <laughs> and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Before we get into part two, we're going to give you a little recap. It's essentially a list of startling horrors from the first episode, so brace yourselves. Caesar Baroni was born Adolf James Rohde in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1960. He went by Jimmy before changing his name to Caesar, so to avoid confusion, we're referring to him as Jimmy. I still want to call him Adolf. I hear he's only got one ball. Well, that may well be true. I want to call him all kinds of things. So I guess we're both going to hold back just a little bit or I would just already have done like 19 C-bombs. Jimmy had been a nasty slice of hell since he was a kid, constantly picking on other children and doing things like trying to put out lit cigarettes on their eyeballs. He had a pet monkey that he liked feeding live cats to. He began breaking into the homes of elderly women and stealing from them in his early teens. By the age of 15, he'd attempted to rape 70-year-old retired school teacher Alice Stock. When he was 18, he went back to finish the job raping and killing poor Alice. He raped and tried to kill his stepmother. He beat his grandmother nearly to death with a rolling pin. While in prison on burglary charges, he attacked a female prison guard and tried to rape her too. When he was in the Florida State Prison, he was housed next to Ted Bundy. They spent a lot of time talking and Ted helped him up his murder game. That's when they weren't cheersing each other with mugs of toilet wine and toasting to the pain and suffering of women. When Jimmy got out of prison, he raped and murdered 61-year-old Margaret Schmidt. At the end of the last episode, 41-year-old nurse and midwife Martha Bryant was driving home from work in her VW Bug when she was shot and abducted from her car. According to court records, shortly after 3am on October 9th, 1992, the Washington County 911 Centre was inundated with calls about shots being fired. A police officer was sent to Cornell Road on the outskirts of Hillsborough to investigate these calls. When the officer arrived at the scene, he found Martha Bryant's green VW bug parked across the footpath. The bumper sticker on it read, Midwives Hold the Future. The car was nearly as bullet-ridden as Bonnie and Clyde's last ride, with many of the windows smashed and broken glass everywhere. Nobody was inside, but the interior of the car was covered in blood. The key was in the on position in the ignition, but the engine wasn't running. Martha's handbag and registration were discovered in the car, and several 9mm bullet casings were collected at the scene. Jimmy had dragged Martha from her car and driven off with her, shot and bleeding heavily in his back seat. He drove for a few minutes, then pulled over in an unlit area. He attempted to rape Martha before pulling her from his car and throwing her onto the road. Then he put a pistol to her temple and shot her execution style before driving off into the night. 
Jimmy was more than escalating and Martha didn't stand a chance. More 911 calls came in from drivers who'd passed what they thought was a man lying on 231st Street near the railroad tracks. When an officer went to investigate, he found Martha lying on the road with her pants and underwear pulled down to her ankles. One of her shoes had come off in the struggle. When paramedics arrived, she was still breathing, but she was unconscious and unresponsive. Martha Bryant was airlifted to the Oregon Health and Science University Intensive Care Department. She died without gaining consciousness. Martha Bryant was born on September 11, 1951 in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She had scoliosis when she was 12 and had to wear a heavy back brace. She was a free spirit as a teen, a pacifist who cared about the environment long before it was a popular thing to do. Passionate about education and helping people, she got a degree in nursing and spent some time in Alaska working for a Native American health program. Then she completed a nurse midwife course and got her Master's of Science degree in nursing. In 1990, Martha started working at Healthy Start, a maternity care service for disadvantaged pregnant women in Washington County. She married her long-term boyfriend, Rob, soon after. She sounds like she was truly a wonderful person. Look, she really does. And it really sucks that we usually only get to talk about great people who've been the victims of shit people on this podcast. Well, it's not called bloody nice people, is it? Yeah, maybe we should start that podcast. Do you think many people would listen? No. No. 24-year-old Gloria Thomas lived close to where Martha's VW came to a halt. She was awoken at around 3am by gunshots. Then she heard two male voices or a male and female voice. According to the TV show Predator at Large, when she looked out the window, she saw a man get into a very shiny silver or white mid to late 60s two-door sedan. It was a muscle car. She thought it looked like a 68 Chevy Nova. Gloria told the police a man was around six foot tall with a medium build aged in his mid-twenties. He had short brown hair with highlights on the top. Ah, the frosted tips. Yes, they will always bring you undone. According to the book Dead of Night by Don Lasseter, police initially believed that Martha's murder was so ugly and violent that it must have been done by someone who knew her and had a personal motive. Detectives headed over to Martha's house to speak to her husband. Rob was, of course, devastated by the news of his wife's murder. He had a solid alibi for the time she was killed and was quickly eliminated as a suspect. All of Martha's friends and colleagues were questioned, but none of them could think of anyone who would want to hurt the beloved midwife. That suggested to the police that the senseless attempted rape and murder may have been completely random. Police were alerted to be out on the lookout for a white muscle car in connection with the crime. According to the TV show Predator at Large, Martha's murder left the Hillsborough community mortified. They figured if a random brutal attack like that could happen to Martha, it could happen to them or their loved ones. One month after Martha Bryant's murder, the police still didn't have any suspects. Bullet casings found at the scene were determined to be 9mm Luger shells and all the blood found in the car was Martha's. A reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of Martha's killer. The media talked regularly about the case and tips came flooding in. Police searched records of all white muscle cars registered in the area and drove witnesses around all the local car lots in the hopes they could identify the correct make and model of Jimmy's car, but they had no luck. 
On October 25th, over 100 friends and family members gathered to mourn Martha Bryant's untimely death. Many of the mourners were women with babies that Martha had delivered. A colleague of Martha said, There is incredible rage and terror at the randomness of it all. She spent her life making people whole. Someone has taken that away, taken away the courage she gave to other people. They went on to say, through tears, Right now, I just miss her. And what was Jimmy up to, I hear you ask? I did not ask that, unless you want to tell me he spontaneously combusted and died in horrible pain. Unfortunately not. He quit his cabinet-making job and applied to work at a nursing home. Oh, come on. That's a terrible idea. And he got the job. (sighs) That's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for this dickhole. Yeah, I don't like it. Meanwhile, Jimmy's wife, Kathy was upset by how much time he spent away from home and wondered if he was having an affair. She wishes he was having yeah. an affair. I mean, it'd be terrible, but better than what he was actually up to. Kathy is quoted in the book Dead of Night as saying, he would come home from work, change clothes, sometimes stay for an hour or so, and then say, oh, I have to go back to work tonight. Or he'd be going out to play pool with someone or to have coffee with someone. He'd leave and say, I'll be back in a couple of hours and then show up at three in the morning. He also drank beer constantly, even though money was tight. By the time their son turned one, Kathy was done trying to save the marriage and they got divorced. Kathy and her son moved back in with her mother, Joyce. Jimmy promptly got himself a new girlfriend named Sheila, who moved in with him and brought her 11-year-old daughter with her. Jimmy had told her that he sometimes used meth, but Sheila was worried that he was on it a lot more than sometimes. She also wasn't a big fan of the two guns he owned and the fact he usually carried the Browning 9mm on him. It wasn't long before Sheila started to suspect that Jimmy was sexually abusing her daughter. Did that deter her from the relationship? No, no, it didn't. Though she put some effort into making sure her daughter wasn't left alone with him. You know how I mentioned that Jimmy got a job at a nursing home? Oh, how could I forget? Well, look, it didn't turn out quite as bad as we suspected it would. See, 31-year-old Jimmy was too busy banging several of his female co-workers to abuse the residents. I'm considering that a win. Although, imagine being a woman who'd slept with him. Like, you'd want to have your genitals removed and replaced with new ones. You can do that? Sure, why not? Jimmy ended up quitting his job at the nursing home. Well, thank fuck for that. Yeah, I know, like, big sigh of relief. This left him more time to smoke meth and hang out with his friends, like 24-year-old Leonard Darcel, whose street name was Germ. The aptly named Germ was a shifty little slimy fuckwit who couldn't stay out of trouble if his miserable life depended on it. He sounds nice. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if he's single. So, of course, Jimmy let him move in with him, his girlfriend Sheila and her young daughter for a while. Because, you know, you'd want that. Germ had form, form that implied he wasn't very bright. He'd been arrested for removing parts from a car that was locked up in the Clark County impound yard and he was convicted on second-degree burglary charges. Breaking into an impound yard, hey? Yeah. Not exactly a Mensa think tank, is he? Definitely not. He also had five other felony arrests. In 1991, Germ was charged with indecent liberties and unlawful imprisonment of a six-year-old girl. 
His attorney was able to get the charges dismissed by claiming that the six-year-old girl had habitually and falsely accused numerous other people of similar behaviour. Six-year-old girls, so devious, so into entrapment. Oh, yeah, they can't be trusted. They're just, like, they're out to get you. Right, he really is a vile piece of shit, this germ guy, isn't he? fuck yeah. Birds of a feather fuck up shit together. A 73-year-old woman who lived in Forest Grove Senior's home was the next to encounter Jimmy. She had MS and was paralysed from the waist down. She awoke one night to find a man standing over her bed. She was paralysed with fear as he put his hand down her top and fondled her breasts. The man told her not to worry and said that he was checking her heartbeat. Then he left her room. She didn't get a good look at his face, but she remembered his distinct frosted-tipped hair. On December 29th, 1993, fuck knuckles in arms, Germ and Jimmy were hanging out together and wanted some lady attention. Since neither of them were charming or attractive, they weren't having much luck in the bars, so they jumped in Jimmy's white muscle car and took their shit show on the road. According to the book Dead of Night, 16-year-old redhead Heather Crane raced to the bus stop from her boyfriend's house, hoping to make the 11.32pm bus home, but she missed it by a few minutes. She was shivering at the bus stop in the freezing cold when Germ and Jimmy drove up. She knew Germ from the neighbourhood and didn't consider him to be a potential threat. Germ convinced Heather into accepting a lift home with them. Heather sat in the front seat as Jimmy drove. She told him what direction to go in and was uneasy when he turned and drove in the opposite direction. Germ asked Heather if she wanted to go to a friend's house with him and she said no. Getting increasingly worried, she again told Jimmy the direction they needed to go in. She was super relieved when he turned the car around. Soon afterwards, Germ made Jimmy pull the car over so he could take a leak. He and Jimmy both got out of the car to urinate. Germ turned his back to Heather as he did so, but Jimmy didn't. He just stood there, tackle in hand, urinating while staring at her. Oh, he's a revolting bastard. Jimmy got back in the car with Heather, but Germ didn't. It was a setup. Jimmy pulled a gun on Heather and demanded she perform oral sex on him or he'd shoot her. Heather said it was like, why are you doing this to me? There's no way. I'm not going to do it. Please don't. She went on to say to him that she wasn't going to do it, so he may as well just kill her. After a while, Jim got in the back seat and tried to talk Jimmy out of their standoff by telling him Heather was cool. Eventually, Jimmy put down the gun and started driving towards Heather's house laughing. Smart Heather got them to drop her off near her house, not at it, so they wouldn't know where she lived. She was thrilled to make it home alive, but did not report the incident to the police. A friend of Jimmy and Germ's named Doc lived in the same suburb as Heather. I'm pretty sure he wasn't a real doctor. After they dropped her off, they paid him a visit. It was after midnight and he had been asleep until they knocked on his door. Doc invited them inside and noticed that things were tense between Jimmy and Germ. The three of them drank beer and Jimmy kept having a go at Germ, saying, You don't deserve to wear the beret, but you'll get a chance later. Was he not French enough? I think it was a reference to Jimmy's time in the Rangers. Ah. Jam took Jimmy's criticism without fighting back, which surprised Doc. He was glad when they decided to leave just after 1am. 23-year-old Shanti Woodman was a slim young woman with black hair and dark eyes. She walked with a limp and had several small tattoos, including one on her right arm that said, My War. 
She was an energetic and caring person with an upbeat disposition, even though life hadn't always been kind to her. I like that kind of person. Yeah, same. Shanti loved music and was friends with a lot of people in local bands. A friend of hers was playing a gig at the Satyricon Club in Portland, which she went to at the same time that Heather was getting a traumatic lift home from Jimmy. Shanti decided to stay at the club after the gig and have a few drinks. Well, Portland would have been pretty rocking in the 90s. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Mm. She lost track of time and missed her bus home. She asked a friend for a ride, but he said he was headed in the other direction. As she waited at the bus stop in the cold without a coat, Jimmy and Germ drove up and offered her a lift. Germ didn't know her name, but they'd both seen each other around the neighbourhood. Germ told Shanti it was too dangerous for her to wait there, and she eventually accepted their offer of a lift. Shanti sat in the passenger seat and gave Jimmy, who was driving, directions to her house in Portland. In the back seat, Germ slouched down as cars drove past in the other direction. Jimmy handed Shanti a beer as they made small talk. According to the TV show Predator at Large, after about 20 minutes, Jimmy pulled the car over to the side of the road. He took the 9mm pistol out of his pocket and sat there playing with his gun. Then he told Shanti to get out of the car. Germ said in a later police interview, He punched her. Then he told her to stand up straight and stand still and he punched her again. He did it two or three times. He was laughing. She was pleading. I'll never forget her words. She said, please don't. She said she had so much to live for. Jimmy was ramming the pistol into her face and yelling at her to look at him. Then he stuck the pistol under her chin and abruptly shot her. Germ said she just crumpled like somebody extinguished the life right out from her and she just literally fell into a pile on the ground. That's the most awful sentence I've ever heard. I hate these guys so much. Yeah, same. Look, my soul is vomiting and crying just just reading this, the, the things they put these women through, particularly fucking Jimmy. Jimmy bent over and dragged Shanti's body off the road. He got back in the car and he was really excited. He pounded on the steering wheel and punched the ceiling. He was hooting and hollering and all amped up, having a really good time. This is what he gets off on. At 8.40am the next morning, a sanding truck operator was driving along the Sunset Highway when something on the side of the road caught his eye. He pulled over to take a look and found Shanti's body dumped by the roadside. She had one leg tucked underneath her. Her other leg and her arms were splayed out. When detectives examined Shanti's body, they observed that she'd been shot execution-style at point-blank range, just like Martha Bryant. Her face was covered in bruises and bloody injuries as well. Her last moments alive had been violent and brutal. Shanti's autopsy stated that the bullet entry wound under her chin was a close contact injury seared by powder burns. There was also a cluster of puncture wounds in the flesh around the bullet hole. They had been inflicted by someone repeatedly jamming the pistol's barrel tip and gun sight under her chin with extreme force. There was no ID or purse found on Shanti's body. The only thing she had was a slip of paper with a phone number on it in her pocket. Detectives traced the number to a fencing instructor who had given it to her on the night she accepted a lift from Jimmy and Germ. 
he was able to tell them Shanti's name and give them her phone number. At the crime scene, police found a 9mm shell casing. When the shell casing was sent off to ballistics, they discovered it was fired from the same Browning 9mm pistol that was used to kill Martha Bryant. Detectives spoke to Shanti's friends, but they couldn't imagine who would have wanted her dead. The police put out a press release hoping for assistance from the public. A few tips came in, but they didn't lead anywhere. No one had seen Shanti leave the Satirican Club, but a woman who was at the bar told police she'd seen another girl running out of a white muscle car in terror that same night. She said she was in her late teens, was about five foot tall and had bright red hair. She was talking about Heather Crane. Police urged the public to come forward with any information about the girl with the bright red hair. Due to the press attention around Martha's and Shanti's murders, Jimmy sold his muscle car and got a white Hyundai. Yes, that's how we say it in Australia. Over the next several days, the tips flooded into police. One of them was from a man who'd seen a girl with bright red hair getting out of a muscle car on the night of Shanti's murder. Detectives went to the area and started banging on doors. After only about 15 minutes, a resident told them he knew who they were looking for and gave them Heather's address. When detectives spoke to Heather, she started shaking and told them the incident had been the scariest moment of her life. Then she went into detail about the night Jimmy tried to rape her. Heather's description of the car matched the white muscle car police had been searching for. She'd never seen Jimmy before, but told detectives about Germ, a.k.a. Leonard Darcel. Germ had moved out of Jimmy's place, and when investigators went to his new address, they were disappointed to learn they were too late, and the vile asswipe Germ had just left town. We'll be back with the conclusion of Bundy's buddy, serial killer Caesar Baroni, after this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, Bonnie Black, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, (laughs) song that you sing to your dog. (gasps) Dance, puppy, dance. (laughs) Or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from our lovely friend, Fiona Griffin. And she tells us about the true crime book, Cops, Drugs, Lawyer, X and Me by Paul Dale and Vicky Petratus. And she writes, With the exposure of the Lawyer X scandal in Victoria and my 20-year fascination with Melbourne's underworld war, I couldn't wait to read this 2020 release by former Victoria police detective Paul Dale and best-selling author Vicky Petratus. 
This book goes into great detail about the unsolved 2004 murders of police informer Terence Hodson and his wife Christine. Terence was a carpenter with prior convictions for trafficking drugs, armed robbery, dishonesty and firearms offences. He was a prolific informer, providing enough information to the drug squad to keep them very busy and even informed on his own kids. Jesus. Paul Dale is almost always referred to as a disgraced former detective, and if you believe what was reported in the media over the years, you could join some dots and conclude he must have been corrupt. He must have paid a hitman to kill Terry and Christine, and he must have organised for Carl Williams to be murdered because he was going to testify against him. Yeah, there's some pretty clear dots there to join. (laughs) Yeah, they do form a very clear picture, don't they? The book centres on the events of the AFL Grand Final evening, Saturday, September 27th, 2003. A drug house in Oakley, under surveillance by the Major Drug Investigation Division, was about to be raided. Two males were arrested in the vicinity of the Dublin Street House, Terry Hodson and Detective Senior Constable David Mitchell, a crew member of Paul Dale. Terry Hodson was potentially facing 10 years in prison if convicted for the aggravated burglary and possession of a firearm and trafficking a commercial quantity of drugs. At 56 years old and in poor health, which could have meant dying in prison, he turned dog yet again. On the word of Terry Hodson, Paul Dale was arrested for conspiracy to commit burglary and theft and conspiracy to traffic a commercial quantity of a drug of dependence. Tony Mockbell was linked to the Dublin Street drug house and lost hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of dollars, due to the exposure and robbery. David Mitchell was also the arresting officer of Mandy Hobson, one of Terry and Christine's daughters, who, along with their brother Andrew, was arrested in 2001 for trafficking ecstasy. Dave and Mandy had a brief relationship. Hey, baby. Dave served 12 years in prison for the Dublin Street robbery and has never implicated Paul Dale. Terry and Christine's other daughter, Nicola, is married to Peter Reid, who was acquitted of the 1988 Russell Street Police Station bombing. Terry introduced Peter to Nicola while he was in prison. Sometime after 6pm on Saturday, May 15, 2004, Terry and Christine were shot dead execution-style in their unit in Harper Q. There were no signs of forced entry. The video surveillance system, installed by the police, had been operating with the recorder in the garage, but only six videotapes were found. The crucial Saturday tape was missing. Paul Dale was arrested for the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson. He was also accused of distributing Terry's informer file throughout the underworld, arranging for a hitman to kill Terry and his wife lying to and misleading the Australian Crime Commission and organising to have Carl Williams murdered in prison so he couldn't testify against him at the trial for the murders of Terry and Christine. Carl Williams was described by Justice Betty King, the most unsatisfactory witness virtually incapable of telling the truth. Yet in his desperation to cut a deal with police, Carl and his father George were offered payment of 700 k for a tax debt His daughter's private school fees paid and a reduced sentence for offering up Paul Dale. Carl was murdered in Barwon Prison by the very scary Matthew Johnson on the same day the Herald Sun published a front-page story about police paying Carl Williams for his information. Rodney Collins, that was in episode 
72, we covered him, also gets a dishonourable mention preparing to make a statement and testify in court that Paul Dale had approached him to kill the Hodsons. However, it was on the condition that all charges he currently faced and were in custody for were dropped and any reward for the Hodson murder would go to his girlfriend. All very sus. Collins was serving a life sentence for a double murder but is believed to have been involved in nine murders. I was really shocked by the conduct of the police throughout this book, yet there was never anything substantial against Paul Dale. Well, you know what? He did write this book. (laughs) Well, yeah, true. He was arrested, thrown in jail, charges dropped, and that just went over and over again. Mm -hmm. On a loop. On a repeat. Victoria Police and Chief Commissioner Simon Overland were so desperate for results during the height of Melbourne's gangland war that the deals that we're trying to make would have put scumbags back on the streets. Nicola Gobbo, a criminal barrister, was used as an informer against her own clients. Oh, look, you've got to love the Gobbo as a surname. It's also um, like that term is used as a euphemism for a head job here in Australia. Well, she gave a lot of those. Yeah. I've got to tell you. Nice but, one, Nicola. Yeah, and she was also um, uh, banging boots with uh, Paul Dale. Oh, were they uh, rattling the toaster and, and jumping the broom? And a lot of the police involved. Uh, she was uh, consulting, consulting consulting with a lot of different people involved in the case. Yeah. Go, go, Schlumper. The Royal Commission into Lawyer X has resulted in the quashing of a murder conviction against Farrakh Orman, who served 12 years of a 20-year sentence for the murder of Victor Pierce. We uh, covered that too. It is believed Gobbo's information has assisted police to secure around 386 convictions, so they're all going to get looked at. Yeah. God, that's um, going to take a long time. Now, all these criminals, you might think they want to kill her, and she isn't hiding in Europe. But the, no, they don't want to kill her because they're going to get their sentences um, reduced oh. or or they're going to get their, their convictions overturned. Yeah, right. They want to buy her a present. They want to buy her a present. Yeah. Hey, Gobbo, <laughs> here's something pretty. Fiona goes on to write, the book comes in at 356 pages, and I really like the short chapters and the way the timeline unfolded. Well, you'd have to keep it kind of short and sharp because there are a lot of moving parts in this um, in in this case. A lot of people involved, yes. Yeah, yeah. There was good background on Paul Dale's life and career and what led him to this series of events. It is an incredible true crime story that happened in my own city. I had a lot of you-couldn't-make-this-shit-up moments and I give it five stars. Hmm. Fascinating story. Mm. Make a good TV series. Yeah, yeah, it would do. Um, we need to get the people who made Blue Murder onto it, though, like mm. real high-quality stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you, Fiona. That book is Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me by Paul Dale and Vicky Petratus, the details of which will be in the show notes. Our mate, journalist Adam Shand, has a podcast about this case. Uh, it's called Understate Lawyer X. Shandy has a vast knowledge of the Melbourne underworld crime scene. So, yeah, if you're after a podcast about this, uh, Understate Lawyer X. Hmm. If you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. (laughs) 
Hey, true crime fans, have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at WineandCrimePodcast.com. Cheers! And now for the conclusion of Bundy's buddy, serial killer, Caesar Baroni. By January 1993, Jimmy's relationship with his live-in girlfriend Sheila was on the rocks. Wasn't it on the rocks from the beginning? I mean, she thought he was sexually abusing her 11-year-old daughter. Yeah, look, I think Sheila's version of being on the rocks and our version of being on the rocks are two very different things. I mean, they were still together, Mm. so whatever. Jimmy had been seeing a 37-year-old steakhouse restaurant worker named Denise Nichols on the side. She lived in an apartment in Cornelius near her friend and co-worker Betty Williams. They both lived just a stone's throw away from Jimmy's place. Denise knew he was also banging Sheila but hadn't met her and, well, didn't really care. Denise was attracted to Jimmy, which, like... (laughs) I just... You can't understand, you do. I can't even... I can't... But she was suspicious about how evasive he was. This enlivened her inner detective and she did a little sleuthing. Jimmy had told her that he worked at Emmanuel Hospital, but when she called them, they said they'd never heard of him. He'd also told her a mafia hitman was after him, which is why he carried a gun. There were many red flags, but Denise persevered, possibly because her dog liked Jimmy. I guess even dogs can be bad judges of character. Not that I'm dog-blaming. Look, dogs are the best, but they can be little whores for treats. (laughs) Since she'd begun seeing Jimmy, Denise's apartment had been burgled twice. Someone had broken in and taken her VCR, TV, appliances and jewellery. She wondered why her big dog had been no deterrent to the burglars. According to Denise, Jimmy could be spontaneous and romantic, but was also prone to temper tantrums, bitch fits and storm-offs. You me both, sister. <laughs> It'd also randomly pop up at her place any hour of the day or night without organising at first. God, and we thought he was a nightmare before. Denise eventually clued in that it was Jimmy who'd been stealing her stuff and the dog was complicit. Bad dog. She phoned Jimmy, planning to demand her stuff back, but his new flatmate Ron Price answered. Ron was described in the book Dead of Night as a short, tattooed, raging alcoholic who was usually filthy, dirty and unshaven with stringy brown hair. So he was slumming at living with Jimmy then. Oh, he was way too good for Jimmy. Jimmy was out when Denise called, but Ron said that he'd take a message. Later, Ron called Denise back and told her a tall tale about Jimmy getting in a car accident and being rushed to the hospital. Oh, did he die? Please tell me he died in extreme pain. Oh, God, I wish. Uh, It was just a bullshit story to, like, garner sympathy and make her not mad at him. On January 6th, Jimmy asked Denise if she wanted to spend the evening with him. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, baby. 
But she told him that she was going to be having another gentleman friend over that night. Yeah, baby. Denise's neighbour and co-worker, Betty Williams, lived alone several units down from her in the same apartment building. She was known in the area as a sweet and understanding lady who liked going to have a flutter on the dog races. She was very close to her four adult sons and loved babysitting her grandchildren. Betty had some health issues. She was a long-term alcoholic who looked older than her 51 years. She'd been a chain smoker for a long time and was suffering from emphysema. Her liver was enlarged and her arteries were dangerously clogged. Despite her health issues, Betty worked regular shifts as a waitress at the steakhouse with Denise. The two hung out outside of work too. Denise had introduced Betty to Jimmy and sometimes she'd go over to Denise's and have a drink with the two of them. One of Betty's sons had been trying to call her on January 7th and felt something was wrong when she didn't answer or get back to him. He had phoned one of her neighbours to go and check on her, but when they knocked, she didn't respond. He contacted some of her friends who said they hadn't seen her either. By the afternoon, he was very concerned. He hopped on his bike and rode the few miles to her apartment. When she didn't answer his knocks, he used a hidden spare key to get in. The first thing he noticed once inside the flat was a bra lying on the floor. This surprised him as his mum wasn't in the habit of leaving her underwear lying around the place. He yelled out to his mum but got no response. He checked the bedroom but it was empty. He continued on to the bathroom where he was confronted by an horrific sight nobody should have to see. His mother lay on her back, bent over the rim of the bathtub, with one leg tangled up in the shower curtain. Her face was submerged in a few inches of water and her tracksuit pants clung to her left ankle, like they'd been quickly pulled off her. Her son raced to Denise's apartment to call 911. EMTs arrived quickly, but Betty had already been dead for quite some time. There was no blood at the scene, but on the floor of her apartment, police found a browning 9mm handgun. Investigators looking into the case found the circumstances of Betty's death to be very suspicious, particularly considering the bizarre position her body was in. Her son told them his mum showered in the morning and never took baths at night. She always deadbolted the door when she was at home alone, but the deadbolt was unlocked. There was no money in her purse, which was unusual as she normally had a lot of change from tips she got at the restaurant. Betty Weems' death was ruled as a heart attack, but investigators still believe she had been murdered and questioned her friends and co-workers. According to the TV show Predator at Large, forensic testing confirmed what some investigators were suspecting. The 9mm handgun found at Betty Weems' house was the same gun that was used to kill Martha Bryant and Shanti Woodman. When they swabbed the inside of the barrel, it had Martha Bryant's blood in it. Police now knew they were looking for a serial killer. With germ in the wind and presumed to be on the run, Hillsborough Police contacted other police departments to widen the search. Jimmy was still in touch with his ex-wife, Kathy, who was living with her mother and grandmother. She and her mum, Joyce, were both looking after her grandmother, who was elderly and unwell. Her mum worked nights as a nurse and Kathy worked days, so one of them was usually home to look after her. On February 4th at 2pm, Kathy's brother went to visit their mother and found her dead on the floor. She was fully clothed with no sign of trauma or assault. It was assumed that she'd suffered a heart attack and so no autopsy was performed before she was buried. 
It wasn't until a week after Joyce's death that her son noticed her ATM card was still being used. Someone had been taking $300 to $500 out of her account each time. These transactions were from ATMs that Joyce never used. Her accounts had been drained of $3,000 and all the withdrawals happened to be from ATMs without CCTV cameras. Jimmy's girlfriend, Sheila, wondered why he sometimes had money but was usually out of work. On February 6th, he'd boasted about the $950 cash he had on him. When she asked him where he got it, he told her some unicorn bullshit story about collecting an unpaid drug debt for a friend who had given him a cut. Jimmy took Sheila shopping and bought her some sexy lingerie. Three days after Kathy's mother Joyce's death, Jimmy talked to Kathy's brother and told him that he'd seen Joyce on that Thursday morning, just hours before her body was found. He said he'd been at her place and they'd talked. When he asked Jimmy why he was there, Jimmy replied that he'd come to borrow a wrench to remove his car's oil filter. The brother found this odd as he'd seen Jimmy borrow the wrench two days earlier. He immediately suspected Jimmy of stealing Joyce's ATM card and possibly being involved in her death. He went to the sheriff's office to tell them about it. There was no evidence of foul play, but they decided to look into him. When detectives checked VICAP, they found out about Jimmy's birth name and criminal record. Police had Kathy's mother, Joyce Scarborough's body, exhumed. I bet it was raining. Yeah, it is always raining when a body is exhumed. I mm. think they schedule it around rainfall. Unfortunately, they were unable to confirm a cause of death. You know, it probably helps that the soil is wet. It's probably easier to dig. Maybe there's a reason. On Saturday, February 13th, Jimmy tried to rape his neighbour, 58-year-old Matilda Gardner, at gunpoint. Fortunately for her, he couldn't get an erection. Worried about what he was going to do next, Matilda told him that a friend of hers was due at her place any minute and implied that Jimmy could come back later and they'd take a rain check, which worked. Smart. Yeah, very. After he left, she just, like, had a meltdown and called a friend who called the police to report the attack. Eleven days after the attempted rape of Matilda Gardner, 83-year-old Sarah Ross answered the knock on her Hillsborough home door. It was 8.30pm and she only opened the door a little to see who was there. It was Jimmy, who told her there had been a car crash down the street and asked if he could use her phone to call 911. Not wanting to refuse help to someone in need, she opened the door and let him in. Jimmy walked past her, then turned around and grabbed her from behind. With one hand around her neck, he groped her with the other hand. Sarah kicked him hard in the shin. Fuck yeah! Yeah, well, she was wearing a personal alarm around her neck, which would summon police or medical help. She pushed the button on it. This alerted the cops and set off a loud alarm in her house. Stunned by the alarm and flummoxed by how much he'd lost control of the situation so quickly, Jimmy grabbed Sarah's purse and ran off. The description Sarah gave of Jimmy made the police think he was the same man who had attacked Matilda Gardner. Hot on Jimmy's trail, investigators finally caught a break when they received news that Germ had been put in jail in Oregon City for unrelated charges. Detectives interviewed Germ and he swore he was not guilty of the murders but gave them information on Shanti's killing and the attack on Heather. He said the man responsible was Caesar Baroni. On February 27, 1993, Jimmy was arrested at a bar. Of course he was. Yeah. He was at a bar. Police questioned him about the attack on Matilda. 
Jimmy denied any involvement and claimed Matilda had come on to him. Right, yeah. Jimmy used his phone call from jail to call his flatmate Ron and ask him to pick up his wallet and personal belongings the police had taken off him and do him another favour. He then called Sheila and told her a crappy story about Matilda throwing herself at him and him not being into it. During questioning, he admitted he was the last person to see Betty Williams alive. Detectives took pictures of Jimmy and showed them to witnesses and victims. Sarah Ross quickly identified him as her attacker. When police went to search Jimmy's house, they found someone had set it on fire. At the blaze was Jimmy's roommate Ron, who insisted he knew nothing about the fire. His beard happened to be severely singed. When the police pressed Ron, he eventually told them Jimmy had called him from jail and told him to burn the house down. He also told them about Jimmy's guns and knives. After the fire was put out, detectives searched what remained of Jimmy's house. They were hoping to find the shoes that matched the prints which were left behind at the scene of 64-year-old Margaret Schmidt's murder. Once inside the house, detectives hit pay dirt. They discovered a pair of size 8.5 Reebok ERS sneakers. The shoes and the footprint matched. It was a fuck you Jimmy Cinderella moment. Yay. Police then discovered that Jimmy had sold his white muscle car soon after the murder of Shanti Woodman. They managed to track down the vehicle and hoped that they'd still be able to find something of evidentiary value inside. According to the TV show Predator at Large, when the crime lab technician came out to look at the car, she noticed that one spot on the back seat had been cleaned more intensely than the rest. When she sliced open the seat cushion, the seat padding underneath was soaked with blood. DNA testing later revealed it to be Martha Bryant's blood. During interviews with detectives, Jimmy swore till he was blue in the face that he was an innocent man but that's not what he said when they weren't around. Before his trial, Jimmy's disgusted cellmate, let's call him Dave, came forward with new information Jimmy had told him about his crimes. You see, Jimmy liked bragging about his murders. He considered himself to be the new Ted Bundy. Dave told authorities... Had this been a drug murder, you would have never heard a word from me. But this is just sick, twisted stuff. That's oh, what he lives for, man. And you can tell he's a pervert. That's like his whole thing in life. Not only did Jimmy tell Dave that he'd killed a midwife by shooting her in the temple, but he showed him where their cars had been when he shot her, using a bar of soap and a candy bar to represent their vehicles. He also told his cellmate all about how he was attempting to rape Betty Williams and how she was so incredibly terrified that she had a heart attack and died. When he described his attacks to Dave, Jimmy got super excited. He hooped and hollered and grabbed his crotch and jumped around, getting off on reliving them. Nobody in the prison envied Dave. Poor Dave. Yeah, I know. Like, you'd think a hardened, a hardened criminal would be, like, able to, to deal, but he was just like, no, this is just too incredibly vile for me. In December 1994, Jimmy, a.k.a. Cesar Baroni, was found guilty of the murder of Martha Bryant and was sentenced to death. He also received death sentences for the murders of Shanti Woodman and Margaret Schmidt and a life sentence for the murder of Betty Williams. Florida did not seek prosecution for the murder of Alice Stock since he was already on death row in Oregon. 
Jimmy's flatmate Ron Price pled guilty to first-degree arson for burning down the house, but was only put away for a few months. Germ, also known as Leonard Darcel, was sentenced to 20 years to life for his involvement in Shanti Woodman's murder. He was released in 2010 after serving 17 years for his crimes. In 2009, as he awaited a date for his execution, in what must have been a joyous day to many people, Caesar Jimmy Baroni died in prison from a cancerous tumour on his heart. As this shit stain of a man shuffled off this mortal coil and surely into some fiery damnation, women of the world breathed a sigh of relief. <sighs> cancerous tumour on his heart, eh? Yep, would have been more appropriate if he got it on his dick. Yeah. <laughs> He was only 49 years old. 49 years too long. Yeah, I like to think of it as like a built-in safety switch. Like even if he didn't get caught, he was going to die early anyway because like that was just too much time. That was enough, like get rid of him. Maybe the big man upstairs was thinking, you're taking too long to execute him. I'm going to push the button on this fucker right now. Yeah, you know what? You're just Oregon. You're just dragging your heels and I'm not into it. Let's do it. Boom. Boom. Yeah, and the cellmate day was just like, oh, thank God for that. I can Mm. sleep again now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what a story. What was that, six victims? He received sentences for four victims and then they didn't um, end up prosecuting him for For Alice Alice Stock's murder. And it's likely that he caused the death of um, Joyce Scarborough, who was his wife Kathy's mum. Like, yeah. he probably shocked her to death as well when, when confronting her. But they they couldn't find the proof of that one. And, you know, they've already got him over a barrel. Well, that's right. I actually think that there would have been a lot more um, sexual assaults or at least attempted sexual assaults and that the women were just too terrified to come forward. Apparently, detectives were at his deathbed to see if he'd own up to any others. But, yeah. Um, yeah. No, like, he was just recalcitrant. He just didn't want to, Shit you know, hell. he didn't yeah. want to help anyone ever. Well, what a story. Ah, it's dark. I I had never heard of him until a few weeks ago, actually. Had you? No. Let's never speak of him again. (laughs) I would like that very much. I actually have one question. Oh, God, is it about him? What is Ozzy As? Oh, thank God. Ozzy As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to taste one, Barney? Yes, I would. According to the Daily Mercury, a couple of months ago, ducks started to go missing from a locked backyard in the small town of Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory. The duck's owner, Nurse Desi Friend, said, Oh, mysteriously over the course of two weeks, one by one they just disappeared into thin air. All up, eight ducks just vanished from the face of the earth. They can fly, you know. Not these ducks. Ah, land ducks. Platypuses. No. Platypi? No. Duck owner Desi said, There's no sign of any forced entry. There's no feathers. There's no big fat snakes. There's no dogs. There's, there's no evidence at all. A wild dog couldn't have got past my dog and would have left feathers or a mess and a snake couldn't have eaten eight ducks in three weeks. The birds had clipped wings and couldn't fly, so they had no way to escape the locked yard of their own volition. So what do you reckon happened, Barney? I reckon Desi not only sleepwalks, but also sleep eats, and she ate them while she was asleep. Hmm. It sounds about as likely as what Desi thinks is going on. She said, 
Whoever has taken the ducks has taken all the good ducks and I've been left with squawky duck and old duck is a bit senile. So it must be alien forces that have left me with my two worst ducks. Makes sense. <laughs> Doesn't it? Squawky duck and old duck. <laughs> It was a bit senile. It was a bit senile. Interestingly enough, the aliens didn't take any chickens, horses or roosters, which were also on the property. This is uh, because, according to Desi, they must prefer ducks. And not just any ducks. They were Muscovy ducks, so they were massive, at least double the size of regular ones. Desi remarked that there was plenty of room for the aliens to land their spaceship on her large rural property. Don't know what to get an alien for Christmas? The answer is obviously ducks. Big fuck-off Muscovy ducks. Don't know what to get Al for your anniversary? Ginormous bloody ducks. It's E.T.'s birthday coming up and you're all out of ideas. Big fuck-off ducks. If Ripley from Alien had just given the aliens ducks in the first movie, there would be no need for a sequel. Alien versus Predator? Everybody wins if you just give them some big, bouncy ball ducks. Oh, Tara, I don't believe any of this. Ducks! <laughs> ducks. Quack. So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, I'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us a good review. And when I say people, I mean person. <laughs> so thank you to Tease8312 from the United States. We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team. Thanks, guys. Now, we won't be putting out an episode next week as we need to take a break to catch up on all the things. All the things. We're having um, our mid-year break. Woo! Uh, we'll be back with a new episode on the 6th of July, um, but we will get a patron episode out by the end of the month because That's we right. haven't done a June one yet. Because we owe you one. Yeah. Hey, Tara, our patrons are awesome. We love them. We mm -hmm. love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. For our June prize, we're giving away a Hey Baby pack consisting of a T-shirt, face mask and badge. For a chance to win, be a bloody murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to Leanne Graham. Pat Frantic Zombie Bruno. Austina Christie. David Rawsthorne. Casey Ford. Anne McCarthy, Crystal Wentling, Shashi Bean, Michael Bates, Paul Sanders, and Martha Hollingshead. Thank you, all of you. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. That's my thirsty voice. Mm -hmm. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page or we're on IMDb. You can rate us there too. <laughs> no, we're you, a TV series apparently. Yeah, you don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a hey baby will still cunt. I'm a count. I think someone did that, didn't they? I think they did. Yeah, sweet. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us grow huge ducks that we give to our alien overlords in exchange for heightened psychic powers. It's true. Mm -hmm. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye. And, and keep kicking against the pricks. Ducks! 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 <laughs> Don't know what to say, just say ducks! Duck you! Duck you, you ducking punt! Why don't you go and get ducked? Yeah, well, you just go duck yourself, can't you, Barney? So, yeah, 
no more serial killers uh, for a while. I don't yeah, reckon. you know, only doing happy stories. Yeah. Now. <laughs> I'm just working on bloody nice uh, people and Pug Detective from now on. Yeah, Pug Detective and George, <laughs> George, Lauderdale, George Lauderdale, Florida PI. That's right. <laughs> I reckon Pug Detective must be set in Australia because it's going to be us doing the voices. But um, obviously George Lauderdale has to be in Florida, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Maybe we can get some of our Florida listeners to help us out there. Well, I'm they friends with a, a Florida... Well, actually, maybe more than one. I get confused about geography, but I know that my friend Justin from Obscura Podcast, he's in Florida. All right. <laughs> yeah. He's got such a like nice, chill voice, though. I'm not sure he could be a cheesy private eye. <laughs> I don't know. Hit us up, Florida listeners. Yeah. <laughs> we, we might need you for some voiceover work. <laughs> Miss all this gold. Dance, poppy, dance. <laughs> Careful you don't split Lit your pants. Dance, poppy, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poppy dance, dance, poppy, dance. So Please do don't split your pants. <laughs> I will not go to the dunny. I will not go to the dunny. <laughs> I will not give you my DNA. No. 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 Oh, you know what's up? Vaguely amusing though, when I was doing research for this, more than once, instead of typing in Cesar Baroni, I typed in um, Cesar Romero. <laughs> Cesar Romero, who uh, was the Joker in the original Batman series, who just put his Joker makeup on over his mustache. Yeah, he, refu- <laughs> he said, Oh, yeah, I'll play the Joker, but I'm not shaving off my mustache. Yeah. No way. I gotta tell That's you though, my signature move. when I did that, um, particularly if it was a Google image search, uh, it, it was. A surprise, but it made me so much happier to be looking at him with his moustache and his face paint than this cunt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have split my pyjama pants several times. I usually go around about the butt. Well, I mean, that's probably from all the noxious scents that you pump out of there. No. It weakens it's... the butt of them. I don't know. Or is it from dancing? It's from dancing. It's from dancing in your PJs. <laughs> that's right. Dance, Bonnie, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bonnie, dance. Uh, Abercrombie messaged me the other day and he's like, you know when Barney says, all right, Tara, let's get murdery, at some point you should just go, no, nah, I don't want to. I'm going to the pub, put your stuff down, just take off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I do that too? <laughs> I don't know if it works if we both do it. Before we get into part two, we're going to give you a little recap of part one. So, oh no. <clears throat> The way I've written it is the way I should say it because it's thought out. Don't rely on your brain, Tara. It's not Never. very good. That'll split your pants <laughs> as much as a good dance. <laughs> dance, poppy, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, imagine being a woman who'd slept with him. Like, you'd want to have your genitals removed and replaced with new ones. You can do that? Um, sure, why not? I mean, they're not human genitals. You can end up with like some kind of like either sofu, uh, tofu kind of soy genitals, or maybe pig ones. Or a cloaca. You might have. A, you would love a cloaca. Oh, it would be great. Very convenient. <laughs> pee and pee and poo out of the same hole. I know. I know. I know. I'm not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to pee and poo out of the same hole. No, I'm not allowed to talk about poo. No, um, you're allowed to talk about poo if you must, and I know that you must. It's just that I'm not going to make all the poo references that you want me to make with you. <laughs> Pooey murder. He also had five other felony arrests. In 1991, Jem was charged with indecent liberties. Uh, and- can you just do that also? <laughs> he had five other felony arrests because you sounded drunk. 
<laughs> it's very unfortunate for me to sound drunk when I'm not. I know. You? Don't you think that's a bit fucking you... unfair? That's unfair, isn't it? That's very unfair. Yeah. What if I'm walking around sober sounding drunk all the time and just nobody's telling me? <laughs> well, I'm telling you. I know, but you're the only person I see that doesn't live with me or isn't a shopkeeper. <laughs> There's just like, you know, my boyfriend and the dog and, well, they don't tell me. No. I, I do jump around singing stupid songs to the dog a lot, though. I mean, yeah, that's kind they, of drunk behaviour. You probably just tune out, mate. <laughs> oh, the dog <laughs> loves it. Fuck you. I had bad calamari once in this restaurant, and I'm not going to name the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a little bit um, high at the time because I'd smoked this joint after coming out to see Ed Cooper in concert at Collingwood Town Hall. Uh-huh. And afterwards, we went to this pizza restaurant, and I got this calamari. And I had one pace and it was off. Yeah, I don't know if I'd do calamari at a pizza restaurant. You need to get it from somewhere that would probably sell a lot of it so it would be fresh. Well, at the end, I said to the waiter, I said, look, I'm not going to pay for this because I haven't eaten it because it tastes weird. And I said it nicely. I wasn't horrible. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the cook came out, the, the owner came out, and I and they said, no, you have to pay for this. I said, well. Did I- they also make you eat it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I really only had one piece. And I said, no, you've eaten half of it. No, I haven't. <laughs> and anyway, it turned into a thing and it got so bad. Oh, is the, this the one that you got banned from? And, yeah. And the <gasps> owner went and locked the door. And he locked you in or out? Locked us in. <laughs> wouldn't let us leave because I'd already paid for all the other food. I just left cash. And um, he wouldn't let us leave. And so there was a phone there and I I just, I couldn't, re- I was a bit ripped. And I was thinking, 911, no, that's not right. <laughs> oh, yeah, triple zero. So I'd rang the cops. And then and then the owner went, oh, no, no, you can go now. And he let us out and um, he gave me $20 oh. cash. And um, he let us out. But meanwhile, the cook and the waiter followed us out and we haven't got us and wanted to punch us. Wow. And then the cops arrived. <laughs> and anyway, we just got in our car and we scarpered. God, that's kind of an Aussie as all, all on its own. Um, and so that's the one that in Carlton that you're banned from. Is it that one? Yeah. Ah. I yeah. Mean, I happened. wouldn't have ordered calamari from there anyway. Yeah, it was like 20 years ago. I think I could go there again. Would you want to? No. You want to go there and have the calamari, don't you? Or no. maybe for Christmas I'll take you there for that bloody murder Christmas party. We'll go to that place. Really? Calamari for everybody, which is just both of us because no one else works on this podcast but us. Yeah. You get two serves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even if it's off, I have to eat it. Yeah, especially if it's off, you have to eat it. Eventually, Jimmy put down the gun and started driving towards Heather's house. Heather's house. <laughs> you got a, Your mouth is nearly as loose as your anus. <laughs> so not at all. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Do it. That's a lo- that's the most lovely thing. Could you could you write that on my next birthday card? Your mouth is nearly as loose as your anus. Yeah. Chop. Happy birthday, Barney. <laughs> what about Merry Christmas? I mean, uh, Christmas is coming up. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe that, hey, that my eulogy is writing itself, isn't it? <laughs> eulogy? I'm thinking tombstone. <laughs> no, I'm going to do like um, uh, like Tiger King and talk about how big your balls are. Did he talk about how big his balls were? I think so. Look, if he didn't talk about how big they were, he was talking about like how great they were, but he definitely went on like a, a little side sort of um, rant about the uh, grace and beauty of his dead husband's balls. What makes great balls? Ah, oh, girth. There's uh, volume. 
uh, whether they're polished or not, I suppose. Right. Uh, texture? Scent? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, whether they take your breath away. <laughs> that would see, did you hear that? Breathtaking balls. <laughs> breathtaking balls. Uh, Barney Black's Breathtaking Balls. <laughs> That's the name of my fourth album. I thought that was the name of your memoir that someone's ghostwriting for you. <laughs> That's right. I'll just go and fetch my menthol cigarettes that are in the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Telling you, those housewife shows are amazing. It's a, it's a treat. Yeah, like yeah. Treat Williams. He's not a treat. Yeah, I'm just going to Google him because I never know if I'm thinking of him or if I'm thinking of someone else when I say. When he I he hear has it. distinct lack of neck. That's who I was thinking of. I got it right. Okay. Yeah. Why would you call your son treat? That's a little bit weird. And it also makes it weird when I say to Poppy, want a treat? Do you want a treat? Um, and she's like, oh. that guy? Not particularly. Thank you for asking, Hey, though. do you want to watch a Treat Williams film? I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, confused. Oh, I've split my pants from dancing. Because oh. <laughs> it's funny because she's not wearing pants. It's, she's just got fur on, so she can't split her pants well, when she dances. Well, they're, they're metaphorical pants. Yeah. They're not literal pants. No. No. This is all coming from a song that I sing to Poppy about dancing and how she needs to be careful not to split her pants. But, um, yeah. Go and sing it. I guess even dogs can be bad judges of character. Not that I'm dog blaming. Look, dogs are the best, but they can be little whores for treats. <laughs> you and me both, sister. Yeah, I can do <laughs> Oh, man, I'm, like, still thinking about calamari now. I'd do virtually anything for some uh, sweet, sweet tentacles. <laughs> I mean this literally. There's a Vietnamese place that does really good tentacles near our yeah, house. Yeah, you like some tentacles? I really like really good tentacles. Deep fried, thank you very much. lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.